filibuster is supported through patreon by listeners like you check us out at patreon.com slash filibuster we also get support from the ehrlich law office discrimination wage and litigation solutions for the district of columbia and northern virginia they handle workplace discrimination non-competition and non-solicitation litigation civil rights and a whole lot more for a free consultation go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster So Saturday is a maybe a, a warm up for a game day. Um, normally, it's just me sitting around watching soccer games uh, when DC plays on a Sunday. But um, one of my friends that normally doesn't get out too much, he's got two kids and a, and a real job uh, that takes up his time. Uh, so he's usually busy. Um, but he was like, is anyone busy on Saturday? You guys want to get together and do something? Um, and so I was like, you know what? You know, he never gets out. I'll, I'll go hang out with this uh, with this guy and, and we'll figure something out from that. And it turned into a different friend uh, has been pushing to have a vertical uh, bourbon tasting. He's assembled uh, Knob Creek's single barrel um, from 10 year to 14 year. He assembled all of the ones they make. They don't make an 11 year. We, we don't know why um, something must have something must go wrong between 10 and 12 that they don't put it out there. Um, but it's he assembled, puberty. yeah, who knows, you know, uh, it's, it's mouthing off and it, it can't be let out of the house. Um, so he was like, I've been waiting to do this forever. Uh, it sounds like you guys are trying to do something. Let's just come to my house and we'll do the whiskey tasting. Um, so that's what we did. And my friend who doesn't get out very much, uh, when we got there, we're eating, you know, another one of the guys showed up with, um, shrimp. So we're just sitting there eating peel and eat, uh, steamed shrimp. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how, how this is going to go for me because like, I, I haven't had more than a single beer in one sitting in 2019. Um, cause I just, you know, like, I don't drink that much. I got the kids and, and I got to drive places and all of a sudden there's just not an opportunity. So I just haven't really had more than a single beer. And we're like, oh, you're going to be a disaster at the end of this. He's like, well, you know, we'll see. Um, so we're doing, we're doing the bourbon tasting. If you, by the way, if you get the 12 year, it's out of this world. The 12 year is like a just phenomenal uh, bourbon. The 13 year is extremely close to that level as well. Um, the 14 year, if you're like a super oaky uh, fiend, if you love an oaky bourbon, then the 14 year is definitely not too oaky, but you can see too oaky in the distance. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we're drinking the bourbons and, and they, you know, each of us and it's not we were going to do like a formal tasting. Like we were talking about printing out the uh, formal tasting sheets and all that stuff. We didn't get to that. Uh, it, people forgot. So it just became poor four bourbons in, in the correct order. So at least we're doing it in the same order and then we could talk about them, but that's all that's as formal as it got. So the pours were not measured. Um, so my friend who doesn't drink a lot uh, after like three rounds, he was like, all of a sudden just kind of giggly. And, and it was like, well, you are, you are completely hammered drunk. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I think I am. Um, <laughs> I think it got me. And we're like, well, you know, what do you, are you going to finish the thing or are you going to tap out? He's like, no, 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 no. I came here to drink all the bourbons and drink them. Um, and so he did. That, and then that's dedication. You know, and, you know, we hung out, we had some more food and then eventually, cause you know, I poured cause I had to drive home. So I poured small, servings to each one so I could get a taste, but not actually like knocking back big glasses of bourbon. And then we had food and everything. So 
over the course of several hours, it was like, I am, I am fine. I can take you home. And he was like, that is good. Cause I cannot drive. And I was like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, and so, uh, we had a grand old time tasting bourbons. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes it, it maybe, maybe this is a reminder to myself that sometimes it's good to get out and not just spend your whole day, uh, only watching soccer. It's good to socialize. As an extrovert, I, I strongly agree. And as someone who grew up in the suburbs, um, not around a city, just a suburban development plan in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, and whose parents still live there. I cannot express how happy I am to live in the city where I can have more than one drink and not have to get behind the wheel of a car. Um, that's a, a choice I have made that I've been very happy with uh, because it means when I do go out drinking, I can be like your friend and not have to rely on the kindness of <laughs> Jason Anderson's to, to get me home. I mean, he could have, there are various ride sharing services. So I really just saved him like 15 bucks is what actually happened. Um, that ain't nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and, and also, you know, that's the kind of thing that might keep you. It's like, if, if you're that kind of person that doesn't get out very much, that's like the thing that might keep you from getting out. Like, Oh, I don't want to have to call a car and then wait for them. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're not out of the house. Um, so yeah. Uh, but it was, it was good. And I, I can't, I can't emphasize enough. If you find that knob Creek single barrel, 12 year, get your hands on it buy two. Um, if you're feeling generous, buy one and send it to me. Or me. Yeah, yeah I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I'd prefer if you sent it to me, but if you sent it to Adam, I would be like, well, that is generous. I can't deny that. <laughs> um, I love the idea of a vertical tasting. I got to do um, a vertical scotch tasting a few years ago, and it was mm. it was fun as hell. And I, I overindulged because, of course, I did. Yeah, well, um, if someone's going to let you drink all that scotch, then yeah, yeah why not? Yeah, it was at... Um, a restaurant downtown that was called a Gwyn that had scotch lockers, honest to God, scotch lockers you could rent and store mm-hmm. your very expensive scotch there on site. Um, so you could just drink it when you were there. But this guy from Scotland like got up on a table and like screamed at everyone and there were free oysters and actually a whole raw bar. It was awesome. It was a great it tasting. Like, that place is legit. no longer open. Oh. Um, it's is now it because like, they were giving you too much for the price i don't think so because i think it was the the scotch maker that was actually sponsoring it or at least their distributor um but i think it's the space i think it's the rent in the space because it's now like three restaurant concepts later there like two other places have opened and closed and Mm -hmm. another place is open there like it's a spot no one can stay away from but no one can stay in either um but i i remember asking like kind of being annoying and relentless on social media when uh new what else is new, social media for right when new columbia said they were getting into whiskey um new columbia distillers here in dc they they make green hat gin they were the first distillery to open in the city post prohibition uh they said they were going to get into whiskey and i said please do um some kind of vertical release where you have your your white whiskey and then as it ages to maturity um pull a little bit out and do a limited release and sell it as flights because being able to taste the whiskey as it goes from moonshine to 
the finished product I, is really interesting to me and something that's that's fun. And it's it's not the same type of vertical tasting that you had, but it's still something that I think can help consumers understanding and appreciation for whiskey, um, which I'm all about. Yay, whiskey. On that note, hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the the Black and Red United and Vertical Whiskey whiskey tasting podcast uh i'm adam taylor he's jason anderson ben bromley uh caught his death at some point and is is currently uh as far as we know sleeping somewhat restlessly on his couch we want him to get better uh we want him to to feel better wait why why are we assuming he would have to sleep on his couch he said he hasn't left his couch in like several days okay all right he told us he's been sleeping on the couch i think so that he doesn't wake up his wonderful wife and and make her life worse. I mean, um, it could be that it sounds, this sounds like one of those like illnesses that takes down everybody. Yeah. Like I, I heard from uh, one of my friends that didn't make it to the whiskey tasting was like, everyone in my house is sick. You guys don't want what I have. I'm staying away for your good. Uh, and also cause I'm too exhausted to get from your, from my house to there without passing out. So it sounds like something terrible is happening. Uh, that's not dissimilar to what Ben told us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it sounded very similar. So I th- I'm thinking that some, some awful thing is going around um, maybe in your local uh, preschools. So Adam, uh, I don't know what to tell you because I, uh, I, I'm doomed. I feel like, yeah, you're doomed is essentially all it is. Like I can stay safe because I don't encounter children very often. So yeah. I don't necessarily get the unwashed hands and whatnot. Um, Thankfully I have, I have almost five years of, kid and daycare immunity built up. Okay. And one thing they tell you when your kid starts daycare is your kid's going to get sick yes. a lot more than you're comfortable with. What there they don't no tell you, to, there's no escape. Yeah. What they don't tell you is you will get sick a lot more than you're comfortable with. Yeah. That doesn't occur to most parents and it didn't occur to us. And man, when, when our daughter started daycare, we got knocked down so many times. Our son has been a little bit, uh, at least, for us, uh, we have been a little bit less affected when he comes down with something. Um, he doesn't pass it to us as much because we have that, you know, his big sister to, uh, right. And in, in the antibodies she's given us. Yeah. Your body's gotten exposure to some of these problems and thus, uh, you know, you don't have maybe a, a foolproof screening process, but you got like a shield at least. Yeah, now that I've said that, I'm probably going to miss the next three shows with just the whatever, worst. Yeah, whatever, whatever this is that's happening to It's going to be bad. Yeah. Well, stay um, away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you you live out there and wherever it's true. The, the in odds, Maryland. The, the odds of you actually physically encountering me in the world are low um, outside of game day. Um, but nonetheless... Yeah, I'll probably, you know, be in the contagious stage before I get really sick uh, next time right. I see you at at uh, down on Buzzard Point. So um, if be prepared, if anyone, if anyone gets sick uh, next this time next week, it might be because Adam brought this illness to the stadium and spread it, which around. I don't even have yet. I want it pointed out. I do not yes. even have this yet. Yes. Yeah, so for Yeah. For you to spread it around, you probably you know, maybe on like Wednesday going into Thursday is when you might get exposed. I, I uh, might've been exposed it, today. I picked my son up from daycare today. Uh, so I probably got so exposed then. Well, no, but if you're exposed um, it just now, hasn't, it hasn't incubated might, yet. You might not be contagious by the time the game comes around. 
like you you might actually be through it and then able to I don't know I guess Ben said since Friday so maybe not yeah we'll see I don't know I know this is not the infectious disease podcast uh, it is now do, do we we don't know anything about infectious disease which might be a problem for us transitioning to that field uh, this is not an area of expertise for either of us um, I've seen some movies <laughs> I've played I've played a season of Pandemic Legacy. Okay, that's something. So I feel like I feel like we're on good footing here. Yeah, um, we're we're educated enough to start a podcast about infectious disease. Totally. Uh, as I said, this is the Black and Red United podcast. Tonight we are talking about DC United's scoreless draw in the Bronx against NYCFC, and we are talking to Brian Dunseth about DC United's upcoming visit from Real Salt Lake. That'll happen at Bowdy Field, 8 o'clock Saturday night. Watch it on Flow Sports, if you can. Um, that's going to be a topic on tonight's show. Of course it is. Um, if you're outside of the the DMV, however that happens to be defined, we have an idea, but it might not be an accurate idea. Um, watch it on ESPN+, Plus if you can't. Before we talk about any of that, though, Jason, what are you drinking? Uh, so I wanted to make a Paloma. Um, and at some point in the process of cutting my lime, I thought, you know, I don't just want to have a standard Paloma because there's like there are two different ways that people tend to make them. One is with grapefruit juice and club soda. And the other way is to just use grapefruit soda. I try not to drink soda, but I pref- greatly prefer the grapefruit soda version but I also wanted a like more grapefruit forward version of the drink. So I just sort of split the difference and added some grapefruit juice uh, to the standard Paloma, um, which is topped with grapefruit soda. But, you know, I added a solid half ounce of grapefruit juice in there as well. So uh, I got to say, I liked it. I might make it this way going forward. Nice. Always happy to see iterative progress on, on cocktails. Um, so spoiler alert, we already recorded the the segment with Dunny. Um and and during that segment I was drinking a Hellbender Ignite IPA. Hellbender is a, a brewery here in DC. Um their their logo is a salamander. Uh, and I'm not totally sure why. I knew at one point, but I don't anymore. Um I think a salamander a- there's some sort of ancient lore linking salamanders to Satan or to hell somehow. Yeah, let's go with that. There, I might not be making that up. Uh, that might actually have some sort of. I don't know. I could be lying. Yeah, I, I, just, oh, I. I don't know if the name is connected to salamanders, but they they give a lot of pros like a, a lot of their profits. I think go to. Um, oh yeah, here we go. Dedicated to raising awareness of the hellbender salamander, its habitat, okay. and the environment, in an effort to bring this unique animal back into our neighboring rivers. So it's, I am guessing a species that's local to this area. Um, and they do a lot of, uh, awareness and, and spend a lot of their profits on, on helping revive this salamander species. So that's pretty cool. That was my last one of those that I drank during the the segment with Dunny. So I've got a three stars peppercorn Saison right now. Um, well, so a couple of different DC beers, both of which are very good and very different. Uh, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not, I finished my Paloma during that segment as well. <laughs> um, and I didn't want to make another one because it would take time. 
so I just have a Stan- Sam Adams Boston Lager because that's what was left. You get full disclosure here. We are we are an open book here on filibuster. We're not going to lie to you. Sometimes Except we will, but a podcast about infectious disease. We are not going to start an infectious disease podcast. Fast forward one month. Welcome to <laughs> Jason and Adam's infectious disease corner. Look, if you're a sponsor and you've been on the fence about sponsoring our soccer podcast, but you are interested in us talking about infectious disease, we will gladly no knowledge. Um, and do our best, but also our best will not be good um in that if, particular field we will suck at that but if you want to pay us to be terrible at that you know speaking of suck, speaking of sucking uh-huh. next up on the infectious disease podcast leeches are they good it, is that really even a infectious disease podcast subject it is now okay i made it That's one <laughs> i can't argue that we're gonna go middle ages with this it's gonna be great <laughs> DC United uh, had their first road game of 2019. It is now in the books, a scoreless draw uh, on the squash court that is Yankee Stadium. Um, All that matters from this game on the field, the number one thing you need to come away with is that Bill Hamid is not good. He's great. Uh, Yeah, he was. uh, I mean, for a long portion of the game, he only really had to make one good save. So there was a long spell there where Hamid's game was mostly just like, well, you know, Bill had to make it to one big stop and he did it because that's what he does. Um, And then the final like five minutes or so happened. uh, And then all of a sudden it went from, you know, we always hear coaches around, not just Ben Olsen, but coaches around the league talk about, you know, maybe you only need your goalkeeper to make the one big save. uh, And he made it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this was that final five minutes is where Bill Hamid went from meeting that standard to, oh, yeah, it's Bill Hamid. He's better than everyone else. Um, and he does this kind of stuff all the time, um, which, uh, you know, I think after the game, I think it was um, Stephen Birnbaum who said that the team is a little spoiled to have Hamid. And, yeah, we're all spoiled. The, the team, the fans, all of us are spoiled because um, this is I mean, this result, ultimately, if he doesn't come up with those big plays at the end of the game, we're not talking about a, a draw at a playoff team. We're talking about a frustrating loss. It, to go off the rails slightly for just a second, it's amazing how different Stephen Birnbaum saying we're spoiled by how great Bill Hamid is. It's amazing how different that is from Frank DeBoer saying you Atlanta fans are spoiled. You've had it too uh, good for too long. Look, uh, same words, I, completely I different meaning. Yeah, I can't. I, on one hand, like there's that there's this like stereotype of Dutch soccer people just being extraordinarily blunt. Um, and this was like the exact situation into in which to not be extraordinarily blunt, but to be delicate and, uh, thinking ahead to how your message might be received. And he decided instead to go full blunt and, uh, make things worse somehow. Anyway, Bill Hamid, um, absolute MLS DC United legend. Um, the, the save he made on that diving header late in the game, um, it, it was like watching in slow motion and the stream was actually working properly for me at mm-hmm. that time. So watching in slow motion, it was just 
unreal that he was able to reach back behind himself and and keep that from from going in with that big strong paw um it was a fantastic play and then he comes out and doesn't even get credit for a save um but it's it, going to be an iconic photo of him punching the ball out while at full stretch completely laid out horizontal with the ground um you know what's weird? Uh, you're mentioning that 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 photo. He's not being credited for a save. I'm looking at Opta right now, and they are also not crediting him for a punch. Uh, they just aren't registering that as anything. Is this as if he did nothing? Um, which is false. <laughs> it's the opposite <laughs> of what he did. He did uh, everything. He, he did something. We saw it. There's a photo on our site right now of an article that Adam wrote using that photo to show you him doing that thing. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. <laughs> this is I'm about to to copy what I said in in that article. Bill Hamid is channeling the anger and frustration he has with the world. It seems like into his play, and it's such a good, beautiful thing for DC United. He like just going through the frustrations. He went to Europe. He wasn't. He he went to Europe with. I think he thought a a situation where he was going to be able to break into first team minutes, whatever happened that the championship winning goalkeeper at Michelin did not leave. I, I, my guess, my, my speculation is that they thought he was going to leave and he didn't. So he retained his place and Bill Hamid was un, unable to displace the championship winning goalkeeper, which there's not a lot of shame to be had there. So he comes back to here. People start bad-mouthing him. He can't break into the national team despite having a, an incredible half-season last year. Um, despite, as as one of our readers points out, having the highest save percentage of the the top goalkeepers and as far as minutes played in MLS history, there's nobody with a higher save percentage than Bill Hamid. He just can't get onto any, nation, any U.S. national team coach's radar. Um, and so he goes out and he essentially challenges himself in the press to outperform everyone that's ahead of him on the depth chart. Right. And through two games, he's done it Yeah, and it's awesome and it's beautiful and I'm here for it. And this is why I think Burhalter's argument that he's looking for goalkeepers that fit his particular style of play. I think it falls short in the fact that he's not, he's his, his weight on that is too heavy um, because like ultimately the goalkeeper's job before that is going to be keeping the ball out of the back of the net. Um, that function is more important than whether he can, um, hit every single pass in the range that Burhalter seems to want. Now it's great if you have someone that can and, and Zach Steffen to his credit can do both of those things. Um, Sean Johnson sometimes does both of those things. We saw yesterday that that was one of the days where he could do both. Um, and, and credit to Sean Johnson. He was Bill Hamid's equal. On yeah, the he day. was Bill Hamid was amazing. Like, and Sean Johnson was if, too. If Johnson wasn't spectacular, we're talking about a very positive result for DC um, because they would have scored at least once and possibly more. Um, and, you know, looking around the league, I saw other goalkeepers in the last couple of weeks that, it's it's one of those classic like yeah that's what happens when your goalkeeper isn't in that elite tier is that you give that goal up. Um, I'm thinking now of um, Brian Rowe giving up a, a goal for Orlando that it's just like yeah Bill makes that save, um, but Brian Rowe doesn't make that save. Um, but in any case, when you think of the last camp, you, you, I mean, 
sure, okay, Sean Johnson meets the the requirements. Maybe he's a little better as a passer than Hamid. Um, but is Tyler Miller so much of a better passer than Hamid that you have to overlook the fact that he's not nearly as good at goalkeeping? No. Um, is Alex Bono? I mean, Alex Bono has been like one of the bottom five goalkeepers in MLS for a little over a year now. Um, no, of course not. Like you have to prioritize Hamid's skill set and his ability to stop goals from happening over the ability to connect passes. But, you know, obviously that's uh, maybe a philosophical difference between me and, and Burhalter, but to me, it seems crystal clear. Like at least like he's at least in getting call-ups at least. Um, if you want to get into whether he can displace Zach Steffen, I think you can be not uh, a maniac, uh, and hold the position that Steffen deserves to start. But, uh, if you're going to sit here and tell me that Hamid shouldn't get called in over Bono or Miller, I'm sorry, you are a maniac, uh, and you need to, you know, look after yourself. (laughs) So we're going to take a detour here that neither of us especially wants to to take. I enjoy talking about sports media. I enjoy it as a topic of discussion. I think more than Jason does, but nobody enjoys talking about things that are totally broken and bad experiences for everyone, which is what flow sports was this weekend. Um, for those of you who, who did not have the pleasure, uh, this game flow sports was supposed to be geofenced to the, the greater DMV area, DC, Maryland, Delaware, and parts of Virginia as far away from as Richmond and uh, Charlottesville, possibly even part of Hampton roads. Um, but, but that was the basic idea, like draw a big circle. And, and that's de- that that's the part that has to subscribe to Flow Sports to watch the game. If you're outside of it, you can watch on ESPN+. There were watch parties in D.C. proper that when they tried to watch the game, they were told they were blacked out because they were not in the geofenced area. This happened to the official team uh, watch party at Lou's City Bar. The, it happened to the Bar Brava at Finn McCool's. Um, I think it may have happened to the district ultras at the queen Vic as well. Um, really bad situation. And it, by the time the, the way flow sports got it fixed, I think what I read from, from their staff who were tweeting was they hadn't properly updated the database or they had updated it, but not made it um, active. The database with the geo fencing and so they had to reset the stream to do that. And so when they reset the stream, that kicked everybody out. And a lot of different apps that people were watching on, whether it be Chromecast or, or Amazon Fire Stick or Roku or Apple TV or, or on your web browser or on your, your phone's app, if you happen to have a, a phone operating system that, that has Flow Sports, which means you're not on Android it kicked everyone off. And then some of the apps kept kicking people off in the case of, of Ben, who, as we said, is, is sick tonight. And we'll have more about that on our next episode of our infectious disease podcast. Uh, it kept kicking him off basically every 10 minutes throughout the entire game, which is not a good way to watch the game. A lot of people had a better experience in the second half, but just the, the whole thing was bad. And before it even the game even started. We found out that Dave Johnson and Devin McTavish weren't traveling for this one. 
which we're told is a, a situation that's much more common and becoming more common across the league, but it still sucks. Um, and just Flow Sports had to make a good first impression on this because everyone was beyond skeptical coming into this just because the way the announcement was rolled out and how expensive they can be. And Jason is just not a fun experience for a lot of people to watch, to, to try to watch this game. No, it's, it's the fundamental. I mean, like I was thinking about this earlier today, you know, what does being a fan even actually mean? And a gigantic part of it is individual people are making a commitment to watch this team play sports. Um, and they're going to watch them at home and they're going to watch them away. And a lot of times away means watching on TV or whatever, um, watching on some kind of screen. And so people are willing to make that commitment time-wise, um, emotionally, et cetera. You know, it's not nothing like it's easy for me. I don't have dependents. I don't have a wife. Um, so there's not a lot, like I can tell people like, yeah, I'm not available for that. Um, I know for you, there's more of a concern because you've got other people's lives are also going on and you can't just tell them, well, schedule your entire life around me watching this sport. Um, so it, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated thing for people. It's not just, can you point your face at a screen? There's a lot more that goes into it. Um, and so when you do point your face at that screen, you want the game to come across without interruption. Um, you want to be able to see your team play. It's it's the basic thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of people pointed out very quickly that there was no dry run in the preseason. It seemed like mm-hmm. that would have been a good time to do it because, look, if you miss a preseason game, people are going to be mad, but they're not going to be nearly as mad as they were uh, on Sunday. And I'm not that's not a criticism of people who got mad. Uh, I I think you have every reason to be mad. Um you know, getting, getting a practice run out of the way, this could have happened. And then they could have figured out what went wrong and not had this be the case for a league match. Um, and that's not, that wasn't done. Um, maybe this whole thing came together too quickly and there just wasn't time to get all that stuff done. We don't actually know because there hasn't been a ton of information coming out. I will say, um, to give some credit, um, some of the um, behind the scenes programming types, uh, the people that are actually making the machines work to allow this stream to get out to the world, they were actually being fairly forward um, uh, from Flow Sports about exactly what happened. Um, you know, some of the stuff was above my head because I don't know how to make a stream, uh, a streaming broadcast work outside of pointing my cell phone at something and using a Periscope. Um, which somebody else coded. You did not, in fact, make exactly, it. Exactly. Exactly. I only know how to do the very last step. Um, I don't know anything else. Um, so, yeah, but, but you know, those guys probably shouldn't be doing what is effectively customer service. Um, but I did enjoy the fact that they're at least it sounded like they knew what they were talking about. And they're like, no, this is a specific thing that happened with this function and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, so at least that gave us some idea that it wasn't that, you know, their servers were over capacity. It wasn't this and that it, it was, a, it was an error behind the scenes that sounds correctable. Um, in my obviously extremely limited knowledge of what is actually happening when people are trying to stream a sporting event. Um, but yeah, I think it just looked like this came too soon and no one was ready. 
Um, and that, in- that includes the team. Um, yeah, because, you know, I know, you know, Ben put out an article earlier today. Uh, he fought off his sickness long enough to do that. Um, and it's not, I mean, I wish there were more information in it. There's just not that much information coming out that we can, we can spread to the public. We just don't have anything else. Um, it would be nice to be able to tell people exactly whether your zip code is in the geofence or not. Um, but we don't have that information. Um, we don't know it. It's not that we've been asked not to spread it. We just, nope, no one has it. Um, so, um, it, you know, I and think, we've been trying to get it like, yeah, ben this has wasn't, been... we didn't ask yesterday and then do the post today. This is an ongoing, um, thing. And, and, you I know, think since the day of the announcement, Ben has been yeah. pushing to try to get this information and no one has been forthcoming with it. And, and, you know, some of it, it occurred to me today that some of it might just be that, you know, someone somewhere has the information, but maybe the, maybe the team doesn't have that information. Um, I don't know. Uh, we, 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 there's a lot of stuff we just don't know and we should know more than we do. Um, but it's, it struck me as this should have been, this is how the dry run should have gone. We should have had the game against Bethlehem steel or, um, the union or something that should have been the dry run game where we get this sort of thing out of the way where users are given a chance to get a feel for, um, getting on flow and actually operating, uh, their end of the deal. Um, where flow gets a feel for, okay, this is the load we're going to get. This is the number of viewers that are going to be looking in. Um, this is what we did wrong. This is what we can fix. Um, it shouldn't have been the first away game of the season. That's not when we should have found out that there were going to be problems. So that I think is what I keep coming back to is just that it feels like this could have been avoided if there was just a few rounds of practice. Um, and there wasn't, there, there weren't, I should say. There wasn't even one round of practice. Yeah. I'll, 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 you know, help you with that grammar. (laughs) Make you, make your original grammar correct. I write words on the internet. For money sometimes. Occasionally. Please, (laughs) please send me money. Let, let's get back to the game. Hopefully, Flow Sports will be better next week. We'll and, be able to, look, I, if not guess, sing their praises, at least nod our head approvingly at the progress. Yeah, and and I, I guess I will say this: that I I feel like the, I can't remember the last time any major thing that relies on the internet like this worked completely smoothly the first time I experienced it. There's always something. Um, if you've been watching the Champions League, the CONCACAF Champions League on Yahoo, there have been multiple streams that drop out over and over again for the first 10 minutes of the game, and you have to refresh those. Um, and that's, you know, Yahoo might not be the most thriving uh, company on the internet. Um, but, but they're owned been by around. Verizon. They, like- yeah, they're owned by Verizon. They've been around forever. Um, and yet this is their first real experience streaming a sporting event on a routine basis. And, the, you know the problems have been there. Um, so it's the kind of thing where I get to some extent that this wasn't going to be perfect because it was that first time. Obviously if next week, if the experience is roughly the same, um, they're going to be torches and pitchforks, uh, at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it does sound like from the outside that 
they've got some handle on what they did wrong and how to fix it for next week. Um, and, you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding. Obviously, after this, they can't have any drops. It has to be 100%. I watched 45 minutes of soccer, and then I watched halftime, and then I watched the other 45 minutes, and nothing else went wrong. Um, that's kind of the standard that they have to hit now. But, you know, that was the standard they had to hit this uh, this Sunday, too. Yeah, they were they were operating without a net, and they fell. Yeah. It, now they have to get up and do it again. Um, luckily for them, this is a, a home game, so fewer people are going to be watching on Flow Sports because more of us are going to be at the game. But hopefully they can uh, come through for those that are subscribers that can't make it to Buzzard Point, like Ben Bromley, for instance, I'm sure will be at least trying to watch and, and hopefully succeeding in it. Let's get back to the play on the field um, at Yankee stadium. United had some chances uh, as we said, and if not for heroics of, of Sean Johnson, uh, United Sean act- Johnson. yeah, man, he, we we've given him flack in the past and I think deservedly and, so right. because for, for the most part, he was considered equal to, or even superior to Bill Hamid. And that just historically has been inaccurate. And um, even last year, I mean, DC created virtually nothing and then had one lofted free kick and he dropped it and DC got a goal. Um, DC got to the U S open cup final on a drop ball by Sean Johnson yeah. uh, um, in, the, in the bottomless, the bottomless stoppage time that is still ongoing. <laughs> yeah. Just ask those Chicago fire announcers that that hasn't ended yet. Um, but I mean, they were, they were a, a Sean Johnson drop ball that didn't happen away from their first win at Yankee stadium, which is, you know, it's, it's not quite as satisfying as two nothing over the reigning MLS cup champions last week, but it is something. Um, and the team wasn't at their best and they still had their chances and they, they still kept a clean sheet. The only team in MLS, uh, to, to, have yet to be scored on in 2019. So the, the draw, I, I think this was, this was a game where both teams are aggrieved by the draw, but it having yeah. a day to sit on it, it's, it's not a bad result. No, it, especially and the way it played out. It, it strikes me as like, like with the Atlanta game, it strikes me as this is the kind of result you see the really good teams in MLS come up with where, on one hand, uh, maybe they gave up too many shots. Um, maybe they had to lean on their goalkeeper a little bit. On the other hand, you can say the exact same thing about NYCFC. Um, DC didn't get a ton of chances, but the chances they did generate were really good chances. Um, I was really surprised to see the expected goals rate some of DC's looks lower than was reasonable to me because like, yeah, I was too. That first, that first Lucho chance, I feel like that's a big chance. That's not a, Mm -hmm. you know, a little tiny one. That's a, that was that chance by itself would have been higher than the expected goals that, that at least the one chart I've seen. Um, That chance was as big as the entire total that was credited to DC. So I don't know about that model or what I, maybe it's me. That is the dummy. I don't know. No, Um, I had the, I had the same thought. Um, mm -hmm that that both of Lucho's chances looked like, I mean, the second one was from right in the middle of the box center of the goal uh, off of a, a, I don't even think you can call it a cross because the pass was also mm. inside the box. I mean, the, those are the plays that create 
goals. You get a pass from inside the box to 14 yards out center of the goal. Um, that that's a big chance. And, and Sean Johnson saved both of those that, that Lucho had, mm-hmm. um, the, those should have been more than tiny dots. And I think we saw the, the same map, the one that, that yeah, yeah. MLS soccer.com's Ben bear tweeted out. And he's usually the first one to put those, those maps up and those things. And, and both teams had really small, um, expected goals in this right. one. I think the final was 0.9 to 0.45 or something. Yeah. Um, and NYCFC had the the edge, but I think but that's, subjectively that's like they had twenty one shots. So of course, yeah. they like twenty one shots getting to point nine is like almost as low as you can get. Yeah, and this will take us to our to our next point. Two thirds of those were were outside of of the box for NYCFC, if not more than that. Um, I think it's exactly two thirds. It's seven seven in the box and fourteen out, and a lot of those are not yeah, just math. like I think. Only one of those is right on the line. The rest of them are like 23, 24 yards or further. Um, so these aren't just outside the box versus inside the box. These are long range versus inside the box. Yeah. And this is the second week in a row. DC United did the same thing to Atlanta. And this is something we saw from Ben Olsen's really structured teams back when the team didn't have uh, a lot of top line talent is they would just keep the opponent from getting shots from inside the box. If you want to pass the ball around and send in crosses, fine. We'll eat those up and clear them away. If you want to try to pass in the box, we will block you. And if you want to shoot from outside the box, you know, have at it. We have a lot of bodies in the way and we have Bill Hamid behind them. So good luck with that. Uh, In a stadium like Yankee stadium, where it's, basically pinball on grass and you're just trying not to to let the ball pass uh when it inevitably careens wildly into a weird place that's a pretty good thing and i think you have to credit russell canals and junior moreno uh for a big part of that yeah and especially moreno like canals had a good game i don't think he was as good as he was against atlanta where i actually voted for him for mls player of the week um with the North American soccer reporters. I thought he was that good. I I think I was the only person to vote for him, um, which I'm going to blame everyone else for getting it wrong (laughs) and not accept that possibly I could have been wrong. Um, But in this game, I got your back, dude. Thank you. See, we've got to stick together as a podcast. If nothing else, we Um, do. If not, we end up sick on the couch. So yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that disagreement is the cause of infectious disease. Yeah, that's fair. That's that sounds like science to me. And this um, is the kind of knowledge you can get if you sponsor <laughs> our infectious disease podcast. Filibuster the infectious disease podcast. Um, but yeah, Junior Moreno, it, it was one of those games where it's like that classic defensive midfielder performance where you might not notice it watching on TV. Some players might not even exactly notice um, in the game what he did. Um, but there were so many times where he was the guy tracking back and getting a clearance in. Um, And it's, you know, clearances. I don't really, I've seen some metrics that put a lot of stock in clearances. Uh, I personally don't think they're that big of a deal generally because the, the difficulty of, of making a clearance as a defender sometimes is very easy. Sometimes, you know, some guy puts in a hopeless cross and it falls to your feet and you thump it upfield. That's not difficult. Anyone could do that. Um, but the reads that were going into Moreno's clearances and his recoveries in the box and, and the interceptions that he was able to make 
um, they were big plays. These were really difficult things to figure out because NYCFC has some skillful players. Um, they don't look like the junk team that maybe it looked like they might become under Dome Torrent. I think three of their four halves uh, this season, they were the better team than their opponent. They just, they let their guard down in Orlando and fell apart. Um, also, by, as a byproduct, I just want to say that I watched that week one game and I hated it. That game sucked. Um, <laughs> I can't explain it. Like it was just, everyone was like playing on emotion and no one was thinking. It was just a lot of like angry running around aimlessly. And and that's bad for NYCFC. That's very Orlando. Um, it seems like even when they change coaches, that's just a thing that happens to that team. Um, and it, I guess to Orlando's credit, they got NYCFC to fall in the trap of joining them in that kind of game. And it was just, it was unpleasant. Um, but anyway, um, you know, Moreno was having to think the game at an extremely high level, um, quietly put together, I think six successful tackles, I want to say. Um, and, and the plays he made getting back into the box, either to actively interrupt, to make that intervention at the last second, um, there was a play late in the game where he got back and made a clearance that both uh, Burnbaum and Briant took the time to actually go over to him and like clap him on the shoulder and be like, good job, man. Um, which is that, you know, it's one of those classic signals where the guys on the team notice that you just made a huge play that might not get much attention elsewhere. Um, and, and also some of the times where he was just getting back and getting in the way of where NYCFC wanted to, to attack um, where there's no metric, there's no metric. If you get back at the last second and clog up a passing lane, and then the player on the ball changes his mind and goes sideways instead of forward. Um, but those are, those can be goal saving plays. Like if you're getting in the way of that final ball that could have sent uh, a runner in alone on goal, you've saved a goal. Even if you didn't block the ball, even if all you did was force the other player to, to shuttle the ball out wide instead um, you've potentially shut down a goal. And he did that a couple times in this game. So um, I thought this was, you know, it's the second week in a row that one of the two defensive midfielders has had an outstanding performance. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm the person that tweeted from the site account that um, Moreno was having a man of the match appearing uh, uh, quality game. And then 30 seconds later is when Bill Hamid made his second big save. And then after that, he made a third big save and it was like, okay, fine. Uh, he's no longer the man of the match. Um, but yeah, he, he was, this was really a special outing in my opinion from Moreno. And, um, if this team gets that level from Moreno and Canals over and over again, they're going to be like, even if the, the, this was kind of like, not necessarily the floor for this team, but it was closer to the floor than week one. Um, but if those two play like this on a regular basis, the floor is very high. Um, which is a great place to be. And that's, this goes back to the point I made earlier about this looked like the kind of performance that a good team puts on when they visit a, a team that made the playoffs last year and that has a lot of talent and they still go in and get a result. Um, this was one of those performances and it comes back to, um, it's not just that this team has this great front four. They do, but they've also got the other stuff. Um, it's sort of like, if you watch, if you ever watch boxing, you might see someone with knockout power, but also they don't have the ability to take a punch. Whereas DC is that like iron chinned, you know, you can hit them in the body a hundred times and they don't back off. Um, this is that iron chin and that, that um, resilience to take body punches and not flinch is that 
they've got this defensive midfield that's so good. That's as good as it gets in this league, in my opinion. Um, Briant and Birnbaum have been excellent as well. So it's it's not just Hamid. It's 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 been a full team effort so far, which is pleasing to see. I think I've referred to defensive midfield as a platform position. It's it's one that just makes everything else work better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it it's true going forward into the attack. If you don't have that kind of stability from even a little bit of possession and United hasn't had a ton of possession in these two games, but they've had the ability to attack when that central midfield, they know they don't have to cover for it. We don't have to be, have the front four defending at all times. And we have the ability to get them the ball through Canals and through Moreno. Um, And at the same time, they help the defense by, by shielding them, by, by providing structure in front of the center back. So they're not just reacting to chaos, which is something center backs don't generally like doing. Um, so, so the two of them have been phenomenal in, uh, in, in these two games. I mentioned earlier that this was a, a squash court or a pinball table of a, a field at Yankee stadium. And, but before we bring Dunny on or, you know, play the tape on Dunny, um, since it's already been recorded, uh, I, I do want to just please beg City Football Group and the New York Yankees to get the hell out of Yankee Stadium with this soccer team. I've been to Yankee Stadium for a game. It was as a neutral. Uh, I was at the Red Wedding when the Red Bulls just slaughtered NYCFC at seven to nothing, seven to one, something ridiculous. Um, a few years ago, it was. It was a fun game to watch as a a neutral um, just because the field does create a lot of chaos. And if you're the Red Bulls, that's good for you because no one thrives on chaos the way the Red Bulls do. NYCFC has managed to to make the best of it, even though their team hasn't always been built for for playing in that kind of chaotic situation. But it's I, I feel like it's getting worse or at least um the novelty has more than, than wore off at this point. It's, it looks bad for the players. I'm afraid someone's going to get hurt running on the grass. They lay down over the infield at Yankee stadium. Uh, The TV angles are bad. There's so much just dead space on either side of the field that you can see because the camera angle in a baseball stadium is much lower and flatter than it is in a a normal soccer stadium or even a football stadium. It's just a different angle for a different sport. And it's not bad for baseball. It's bad for soccer though. Um, The, the sight lines, you know, in the stadium, if you're there are just weird and bad. It's just, it's done. It needs to be done. It's, it's not like RFK, which was built to be a multi-purpose stadium. Yankee Stadium, especially this new Yankee Stadium, is first, second, and last a baseball stadium. And trying to shoehorn a soccer field in there was a mistake, remains a mistake. It's even more a mistake now. Every year they, they make it again. And it, it's got to change. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that field sucks. Um, as a surface, that's garbage. Um, it it doesn't look like if this weren't, if we remember MLS was, was super willing to take anything they could get to get a a team in New York city itself. Um, The Red Bulls did not cut it because they're not in New York and they never will be. Um, But uh, 
this is an evidence of them. Th- this is an evidence that the league was willing to accept too many concessions um, because it's not, that's not an acceptable playing surface for professionals. Um, if, if an NWSL club had to play on that surface, the league would get trashed. That club would get trashed. If a USL league one or championship club had to play there, it would be the same. It would be like, look at these, these idiots joking around on there's this terrible field that is unacceptable for uh professional play because it's dangerous. It's not just ugly. It's actually unsafe to have seams like that on your flight, your field. Um, and yet we're in, you know, what the, is this the fourth season of NYCFC? Fifth. Um, fifth. All right. So we're in year five. The field looks worse than ever. Um, uh, I mean, some of that was just a bunch of dead grass. Like it just looked right. bad aesthetically. Like it I mean, was unpleasant it, to look. We'd, we'd heard that it looked like it was recently resod, like, which is late even for baseball season, but to resod it just a couple weeks before a soccer game is insane. Um, and that's the outfield portion. Obviously the, the portion over the dirt infield is sod. That's just laid down mm. just for the soccer games, because you can't let it take root there because they have to be able to take it out to have the dirt for the infield. When the Yankees play it's, I, I don't understand what they're still doing there. I, I know it's difficult to build in New York in the five boroughs. Well, the four boroughs, because they're not going to build a stadium in Staten Island. It's difficult to to acquire the land and build a stadium there. And they were even looking further out a little bit onto Long Island and mm. lost out on a, a bid from the Islanders that I think was always going to get it. It wasn't a real competition from what I've read and, and from what I understand. But they they have to find something. We thought it was impossible to build in D.C. and yet Audi Field exists they need to do something there and it needs to be a lot faster than Audi field was. Yeah. But yeah, luckily for them, 20 year plan. Yeah. Lucky for them. City football group has all the money in the world. The Yankees were able to build a new Yankee stadium very recently. They know the connections, they have the connections. And from what I've, I've heard, you know, this isn't any particular source. This is just through, you know, public knowledge uh the yankees want nycfc out of yankee stadium at least as badly as everyone else does and the the financial information that's floating around there makes it sound like nycfc should want to get out as well because they are losing more money there than dc united could have dreamed of losing at rfk um at least from the numbers that that i've heard thrown around it's a bad situation for everyone. And it, it, it seems like it's a matter of time before somebody's foot gets stuck in the turf and, and something and, really unfortunate and bad happens. And, and we've got experience with that in, in DC. If for the fans that weren't around during the brief and terribly unfortunate ground share with the nationals days, um, one of the things that went wrong during that time had a material impact on a great season for DC. They won the supporter shield in 2007. They had what looked like the best team in the league, but it kind of hinged on not having um, both of their forwards out at the same time. And Jaime Moreno's injury wasn't uh, from the seam, but the seam at RFK from the nationals, but Luciano Emilio 
was playing. He played a playoff game on an ankle that was probably two times the size of a normal ankle because he had sprained his ankle in the season finale on a seam in the grass at RFK. Um, This thing has real that these kind of injuries have real impact. They have a real impact on uh, the soccer side. It's not just ugly to look at. It doesn't just, Oh, the ball bounces, you know, it's, it doesn't play true. Um, it changes players, how, how they play because they have to worry about possibly doing, I mean, Emilio's lucky that it, it's only a sprained ankle we're talking about and not something worse in a seam like that. Um, people might remember the women's national team, um, refusing to play at the university of Hawaii of Hawaii's football stadium because of some of the seams in the turf, the, the plates of turf that they had, um, the seams didn't line up correctly and they weren't flush and players were, you know, I think the famous photo is hope solo lifting one of them up and showing how you could easily get your foot in there while trying to run at full speed and play soccer. Um, so that side of it, um, you know, unsurprisingly, that's my number one concern. I don't really care about, um, if city city football group has so much money, then they should build a stadium, um, because they have billions of dollars. I, I yes. have no sympathy for them or for the Yankees. Um, I do have sympathy for every player that has to try and do their job on that surface. Not to mention the fact that one, I don't actually, I like, I I'm getting into conspiracy theory time. I don't actually believe that field is the dimensions that are listed. Um, I think there was a thing a few years ago where Jason Christ, or maybe not Jason Christ because he coached there. Somebody in the league. I think it was Caleb and, Porter. Yeah, maybe Caleb Porter actually went and like measured the lines, but I don't remember hearing anything else about it. They're just like, yeah, Caleb Porter measured the playing surface, but there was never a Caleb Porter measured the surface and confirmed that it was actually meeting the size listed on online, which is, I think the length isn't necessarily the problem, but the width is like yeah. right at the stated minimum, the legal minimum. Um it's the kind of thing that the league would probably not want getting out if they were having a field that was below that. But uh, I mean, Caleb Porter I, did abruptly step away from the game for a while. Oh, now, and see, he's now back, you're getting really, he, he's back now. Theory. I'm I'm not saying that that had anything to do with it. I'm just pointing but, out a thing that is fact, but uh, you know, I've, I've played a bunch of soccer in my life. I've seen fields that were too narrow and fields that were at the maximum width um, I think I have a solid grip on what fields, uh, are too wide and what aren't. And I'm looking at that one and thinking that I don't think there's any way, I, I believe the stated minimum for the league is, is 65. I don't think it's 65 wide. Um, but that's, you know, that's an unproven allegation. I, I don't have anything to pray. Just a sense that I have is that I don't think that field actually meets the regulations that the league sets forward. I just also don't think that MLS has a solution and city football group doesn't have a solution other than carrying on. Um, but that should, we shouldn't accept that um, as fans of the league. We should, everyone should be like, why, why is this considered acceptable? Like this isn't good enough. Give, give us some kind of end game where we say, okay, we have to deal with this garbage for a little while. And then in 2022 they'll be in a place but you've got to do something and it seems like there's total inertia um and so games keep being played in this preposterous environment for professional soccer yeah and it it sucks to have to talk about it i would much rather be talking about nycfc getting a new stadium on the campus of columbia university or something um 
that's a really skillful team. Like they don't benefit yeah. from it either. Uh, it makes them worse. Like their I, players, I think especially under under Toronto, like Patrick Vieira learned how to play with it. He learned how to deal with it and actually it made his team better on the road because they could play out of the back uh, under high pressure in that ridiculous pressure cooker kind of situation. And then when they got into a real field, it became easier. The game slowed down for them. They were better on the road, I think as a result of that. Um, but it, it it's not, I, I don't think you can say it's necessarily working for Toronto. His, his record is fine, but the team hasn't, been as good just generally eye test or or numbers wise but you know that's that's less my think concern i i just don't want to watch games there and i don't want to see somebody get hurt there those are my my two big concerns at this point anyway we are already um over an hour for this segment and the show is going to be over an hour and a half ben is going to love us (laughs) so much it's going to be awesome we're not going to get any snide remarks from him in our our group chat it's going to be just fine it's going to be beautiful that said i'm going to end the segment now and we will be right back with brian dunseth be sure to listen to that segment it's really good please stick around this is filibuster hey ben um you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment would you you can tell Uh, me depends i mean well i should ask you i mean is our goats hostile uh, I think goats are, are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages, or or do something else oh, nefarious, in a, I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I, I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. back to filibuster the black and red united podcast dc united will return to buzzard point this saturday night to host mike petke's real salt lake kickoff is at eight o'clock eastern daylight time uh six o'clock if you're out in the mountain time zone like our guest tonight you can watch it on flow fc if you're in the dmv uh unless you can't in which case try espn plus we'll fi- <laughs> hopefully it'll be figured out by saturday in any event we are joined now by the hardest working man in major league soccer he is come back on the show to help us preview the black and reds visit from the clarendon cobot brian dunseth welcome back to filibuster yeah i appreciate it guys thanks for having me have we figured out the flow sports thing yet have we got a, a final announcement of what the hell happened the other night uh, we I, sort I of think we're <laughs> we're talking about it on the other segment. Some trying to figure it out, but um, as near as we can tell, there was a geofencing issue, and they hit the reset uh, button in the middle of the first half and booted everybody from the stream. 
And then possibly <laughs> separately, some of their apps uh, don't quite work properly. And so you have these interacting uh, bugs that just make it a terrible experience for a lot of people. Uh, that's too bad. Buffering, yeah. buffering, right? 2019, yeah. who thought you'd be buffering? <laughs> In a way, it takes uh, me back to the old days. Uh when not, not every game would be on. No, no, not in a good way, but definitely <laughs> a like, oh yeah, I remember like having to have like internet radio buffer in 2002 to listen to a road game. Um, yeah, I was, I was going to say when we used to communicate via bigsoccer.com <laughs> on the chat rooms. Oh yeah. Oh man. Uh, the, that's the, that's the, that's like the ultimate badge of oldness in soccer is uh, if you, if you had time <laughs> on big soccer, you're definitely old. Yeah. Dunny, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I got a little Gentleman Jack with uh, with one cube right now. Nice. Um, I recently saw their new ad campaign, and it's it's fun. Um, they have the the employees of the Jack Daniels plant in in Tennessee um, dressed up very very fancy and in very high style photographs, and then they're like, "No, nah, that's not who we are." <laughs> and then they're just drinking whiskey <laughs> in the plant. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I figure that or a little bur- uh, bullet bourbon. I'm I'm good to go. Nice. I do enjoy bullet. So uh, let's talk about RSL before we get to the big picture. Um, the the thing everyone seems to be talking about today is is Corey Baird's penalty he won against Vancouver over the weekend, mm-hmm. and whether or not there was contact there, or or whether he was just getting ready for future Concacaf play. <laughs> so there, there was contact unfortunately i think his landing gear were was completely up when contact actually happened um so yeah, is he even going to be playing in this one knowing yeah, knowing yeah, that the disco I, I, I can come down yeah i don't think it, I, I don't think it was that um i don't think it was that bad i i think it was one of those moments where we look at it um, and much like we're talking about maybe the Manchester United Arsenal Fred penalty on Lacazette, or we're talking about Raheem Sterling um, and Jan Mott. I I just think there's with the, with the idea of VAR and technology, um, I think that is the flawless part of it, but the conversation surrounding the way that referees will take in judge um, and try to clarify if there was a clear or obvious mistake made. Um, I think kind of the Corey Baird incident is one of those where defender's late, he's behind, he's challenging for the ball, uh, the attacking player goes down, there is some type of contact, it's extremely soft, um, but VAR and the assistant, uh, AVAR, who was Yunus Marikechi on the situation uh, in that game in particular, uh, just decided that there was nothing clear and obvious that the referee had made a mistake. The ref did not go over to the monitor and take another look at it. Um, so while I think a soft penalty, um, unfortunately, I think it's kind of the gray area of what the perception of the rule of the games are um, and probably opens up a bigger conversation in game-changing plays. Is it worth just the optics? of pro to demand that their referees go and take another look at the monitor just to make sure that everyone in the stadium and everyone at home understands that there was an opportunity to have a second look at it. 
it seems like um, doing something like they did during the preseason where there were a couple of VAR reviews for in DC right. United games and the referee did the Ed Hochuli turn on the mic and announce to the stadium and the broadcast what he was looking at and what he saw and what the decision yeah. was. And that was great. And doing something like that or what they do in, in rugby where they televise the conversation between the video ref and the, yeah. the head ref, either of those would be preferable to the current kind of black box that, that we get. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually had Howard Webb on uh, our show, Tony Miola and I on counterattack on Sirius XM. Um, and we asked about that and he said, you know, they kind of toyed around with it. Um, but it sounded like the, um, the association, uh, the, the association that just finished their collective bargaining agreement wasn't too excited about that idea. Um, what I actually asked for with Howard was the opportunity to actually have maybe a recently retired referee inside the VAR booth um, to immediately have a conversation with uh, the announcers. Because one of my biggest complaints, and Tony and I had this, and Tony Miola had a different um, experience with VAR over at, in Russia for the World Cup. And obviously a little bit different, housed at a at a VAR facility, um, a centralized VAR, VAR facility as opposed to each and every stadium. Um, the request was to have that immediate connection with a former referee inside the VAR booth to help us convey the messaging of what they were looking like immediately. Because one of the biggest problems for us as announcers, um, when we see the referee having a conversation and putting his hand to the ear. Um, we know what the immediate checks are, but we don't always understand or see or recognize uh, what is being checked or what we have maybe missed during the run of play, either on the ball, off the ball, or behind the ball. Um, and it sounds like the technology when there will be available. Um, but I think this is kind of to your question or to your statement. It's one of those where, I feel like there are going to be multiple levels of testing. Um, and I'm not sure there's a, there's a 100% correct answer, but I know from speaking with Howard, speaking with some of the referees, they are all for having the ability of being able to communicate uh, a little bit better and a little bit cleaner. Um, because I know that's one of the big questions of, you know, hey, you're in the stadium. Um, there's a goal scored. All of a sudden it's called back. There's an indication. Uh, from the referee that the goal is not standing and it, it's, you know, uh, the defending team all of a sudden has possession of the ball and there's no clarity as to what exactly happened or why it happened. Um, so I think it's unfortunately with the technology, a continued work in progress, not trying to be an apologist, but just trying to convey the message from Howard Webb the other day. Understood. Um, going back to the player involved, uh, Corey Baird, he, he had some run with the U S national team, back in January camp. Um, really great reviews for his first game, maybe not so much uh, the second. What What is his game exactly? What's his approach and, and what's his ceiling? Um, I, I think unknown on all of it. Um, I think if you would have asked anybody when he came into Real Salt Lake last year outside of Craig Weibel, the general manager, uh, it would have been a Real Monarchs playing RSL squad player. Um, and then all of a sudden, little by little, the fact that RSL didn't have a true number nine uh, was switching between Luis Silva, Daimir, Krylock, and kind of whoever was available at the time 
and then kind of some injuries to Joao Plata, Corey Baird started to get some appearances coming off the bench late in matches. And then all of a sudden, those kind of appearances replacing either Joao Plata or Jefferson Sabarino uh, turned into, hey, hold on a second. Let's see what this kid can do, kind of spearheading the attack because he's super athletic. He's got a ton of speed. Let's see if he can stretch the field a little bit. And he started playing the number nine in a way that, um, quite frankly, Real Salt Lake hadn't had in a long, long time because it was an Alvaro Sabarillo or it was a Fabiana Spinola or it was a Euro Mopsisian or it was a Luis Silva. Um, and as you guys know, three of the four well, of those guys he, played for DC United. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least I would say, and I would argue Fabian was probably the best of all of them um, because Alvaro was on his last leg. And then Luis, she could never tell if he was a 10, if he was a nine, if he was kind of off the shoulder striker, you know, he's creative, but he, yep. He, he wasn't really a goal scorer nor a provider, just a, a pretty talented possession type of player. Um, and so with Corey up top, all of a sudden, he starts getting a run. He changes the way that RSL plays. He becomes more of a threat. Teams aren't condensing and defending through and higher up because all of a sudden he can actually get in behind. And the next thing you know, if you would have said Chris Muller was going to be the rookie of the year from Orlando, I don't know, 15 games in, I don't think anyone would have a problem with it. Uh, if people would have said Mark McKenzie or, you know, trusty in uh, Philly would have been the uh, rookie of the year. I don't think anyone would have had a problem with it. But then all of a sudden, Corey's got something like nine or 10 goals at the end of the season, eight, six, seven or eight assists. Um, and he becomes the MLS rookie of the year. Then on top of that, he's invited, as you guys said, into January camp with Greg Berhalter and gets two appearances as a wide right player. I, I think with the addition of Sam Johnson, uh, the Liberian from Norway, um, I, I, you know, whether it's Bofo Sacedo, whether it's Joao Plata, whether it's Corey Baird, one of those three um, are probably, actually all three of those will probably be at the bench and Jefferson Saverino would probably be the starter with Albert Rusnak and Damir Krylock underneath Sam. Uh, but I think right now, Corey's taken his opportunity. He's taken his sharpness. Um, and with the injury to Sam Johnson, their DP that they signed uh, in January, February, uh, Corey's kind of taken his chances and he's run with it and he's provided assists and he's earned the penalty that led to the 1-0 win this weekend against Vancouver. Uh, Donnie, you're bringing up Sam Johnson and it's kind of leading me perfectly into my question. I wanted to get into some of these newcomers uh, for RSL. Um, since we're on the topic of Sam Johnson, um, what is what is the team's expectation of his game? Uh, how is it supposed to elevate uh, RSL from what they were last year to to, to now? It changes everything. Um, I, I know you guys are familiar with Robbie Finley and kind of his speed and athleticism and his movement. Um, that was, in a lot of ways, uh, Bob Bradley tried to utilize to replicate char- what Charlie Davies was to the U- U.S. national team before South Africa, before his accident. Um, for the first time in arguably, geez, what is it? Seven, eight years. Um, Real Salt Lake has a player who physically is combative in Sam Johnson, uh, is not afraid of one V one. And if you go back and watch the game in Vancouver, when he was battling with Daniel Henry, um, you know, he, he, he was not only holding his own, but turning Daniel Henry inside out, um, can get up, can leap, can win his headers. He's about five, nine, five, ten. Uh, but then he has the pace and the movement 
that is, I think, really, really frightening. And I think, quite honestly, he's not just a double-digit goal scorer, but I think he's going to, you know, much in the same way Albert Rusnak and Damir Krylock in the last two seasons have very quietly asserted themselves as some of the better players in MLS, um, being a small market team in, in Salt Lake, I think what Sam will do will impress a lot of people when it's all said and done in the push for the Western Conference playoffs. So uh, if he hadn't have had a knee knock coming out of uh, that trip to Hawaii uh, in the preseason before the team went down to Arizona, I think he would be an out-and-out striker. But for the first time in a long, long time, they have a guy that can run the lines, get in between both center backs, uh, and isn't afraid to put himself in kind of those passing lanes that's going to get him kicked and lumped all over the field. Uh, I've noticed, you know, he hasn't, as you've mentioned, the the injury in the preseason has kept him from being ready to start. Um, it looks like right now, at least at this early part of the season, it's been that 20 to 30 minute range. Do you think that Petke is ready to ramp him up for this weekend or is he, are they doing more of a slow build? Um, I think he is ready to go, but the okay. question I think is more about, is the team reading his runs and becoming familiar with him? Mm-hmm. Um, and are, uh, is, is he doing the same? Because I think the one thing that isn't really talked about, even from the days of Alvaro Sabrio, you, you had a point striker who was a presence in the box, but it was more about the variation of service that made him so dangerous. And he, he was a poacher and he was a goal scorer. And as you guys saw, he can create something out of nothing, but he was never going to be one to really run the lines and stretch the field and get in behind. Um, and from the days of the diamond formation and the 4-4-2 and kind of the heyday of Jason Price and Real Salt Lake, Arcel's never had someone to really run the lines. And they thought they'd found it in Euro uh, But for one reason or another, it just didn't work with he and, and Mike Pecky. Um, so with Sam, I think it's taken a while because if you look back at the last couple of years, especially with Luis Silva playing the point nine, it's been more Luis checks back, keep the ball on the deck or they try to play direct through him to his chest, or when Dimir Krylock in the playoffs plays kind of that hybrid of a nine, um, teams are able to condense and push high and hold a high line because there's really never that threat outside of Plata and Jefferson kind of inverting their runs and then kind of making the second run in behind. Whereas Sam, I think, if you've watched these two games, when he's on the field, he's really, really lightning quick and he's, he's fun to watch and he's really intelligent. I I think it's too easy and it's too broad of a stroke to just talk about speed or strength or athleticism. Um, Because if you go back to his time in Norway, you go to back to his time in Sweden, his time in China, he scored goals wherever he's been. And I think a lot of that has been his individualistic ability to kind of find those spaces. Um, But I think for RSL, it's going to alleviate a lot of pressure from that under three, under the striker, the, the Albert Rusnox, the Demir Kralix, the Efferson Sabrinos, the Joao Platos, the Bofo Sacedos, the Corey Bairds. Those guys are going to have a lot more time, whereas the last couple of years, I think teams have been able to recognize that they can press and press higher up the field um, and try to negate some of that freedom and possession that RSO likes to have. Um, moving a little further back uh, to the other main newcomer, uh, in the starting lineup, or at least most likely in the starting lineup. Um, I know it's been an ongoing thing for years now with RSL trying to find the right partner for Kyle Beckerman in the midfield. Crylock last year was brought in maybe with that in mind, and then it turned out he was better elsewhere. Um, sure. This year, it's Everton Louise. Uh, 
Um, what do you think about him so far? And do you think he's finally the the right fit for that role? He absolutely is. Um, and the Brazilian, you know, not only is he 30 years of age, so he's gotten experience as a player, but if you go back and you look through uh, the countries and the teams that he's played for, and especially coming over from Spal, from Serie A, mm-hmm. um, he has he has afforded Real Salt Lake and, in particular, Kyle Beckerman, a partner that is as combative as Kyle is, but can cover the field in a way that Sonny did at times, and Luke Mulholland had done at times. Um, I think you guys will be really impressed with Everton. Uh, because in a lot of ways, he's very combative, like an Ozzy Alonso, like a Diego Chara, like a Kyle Beckerman. But in a weird, in, in in a subtle way, his technical ability is so incredibly high that it almost does him a disservice to talk about that that antagonistic style that he plays defensively. Um, from day one that I saw him out here in Harriman at RSL's training facility. I was really, really impressed because it's not that he's the biggest guy physically, but if you look at his legs and you look at his thighs, you can tell he's strong, like he's country strong. Um, and, and then when he gets stuck into his tackle or he perceives that an, an opponent has done something that is out of order, he's not afraid to to, to mix it up. Um, so if you hated Kyle Beckerman, you'll hate Everton Louise. If you liked Kyle Beckerman, you'll like Everton Louise. Um, but I think, uh, much like Sam Johnson, I think Craig Weibel and his staff have knocked it out of the park with Everton Louise's acquisition. You mentioned Diego Chara. Will Everton Louise flick you on the back of your ear while you're running down the field? Uh, probably only in practice. And by the way, that was like the most junior high move I've ever seen <laughs> in MLS, and I absolutely loved every second of it. Jason, you went to high school with Kyle Beckerman. Did he middle school? Middle, sorry, middle school. Did he pull any of that on the soccer field back then? No, uh, he didn't have to because he was always on the ball, and and none of us could do anything about it. Um, (laughs) We were all kind of helpless. That he was like a he he came to goal scorer back in the day. Yeah, he was a goal scoring number ten on a on the U seventeen team that had Donovan and Beasley and and Bobby Convey were all in there as. Uh, attacking midfielder types of some sort, and he was the number ten on that team. Yeah, Man. people people have no idea. They they forget that Kyle was an attacking player. Even even when you think about like his day, Kyle after he left Miami, after we all got contracted, mm-hmm. um, and he went to Colorado, he was the attacking player in front of Pablo, yeah. and both he and Will Johnson were kind of two way players under Jason before Jason Christ and Real Salt Lake got Javier Morales, and then. Uh, it was a big ask. I, re- I remember talking to Jason Christ about him having to have a conversation with Kyle to ask him play as a pure six uh, and basically give up all of his offensive-minded runs and just sit and protect uh, Nap Orchards and, and Hamas and Alave. There were so many people on that old RSL team. <laughs> yeah, and so many of them are still around or recently were. It's it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of them, Nick Romando, announced that he's retiring after this season. Where does he rate all time in the the echelon of MLS goalkeepers for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it's probably a little bit. Um, I think it might be a little bit more fair if we 
maybe switch that from like all-time goalkeepers that have ever played in MLS to guys that have elected to stay in MLS and play their entire sure. career. Um, because I, I, I don't know, I always get a little bit nervous with trying to compare, you know, cause the easiest one, right. Is Tim Howard, but like, how do you compare a guy who was at Manchester United and was at Everton for so long and then comes back to major league soccer versus a guy who, who played his entire career? Um, right. It's I like Jaime Moreno also, versus Thierry Henry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just a little bit different, right? So, um, I would say that Nick Romando has achieved success that probably statistically will never be matched again in, the, in Major League Soccer um, because I think he came in at a time in 98, 99, somewhere in there where the longevity of the career in, of, of a goalkeeper in MLS was a little bit more stable once he won that job, um, even though Nick, you know, Nick's gone from Miami, D.C. with a quick quick stop you know, from RSL to no one for no one remembers New York Red Bulls uh, mm-hmm. because of the Freddie Adu, um, Jay Nolly trade, uh, and then coming back to Real Salt Lake when Scott Garlic kind of forced tried to force his hand for a new contract. I could tell stories about the like the dark side of MLS for days. Um, <laughs> I, I think when it's all said and done for Nicky, he'll he'll be reminded for a couple things. Number one, uh, that nickname, the Wall of the Wasatch, because he's had so much success out here in Salt Lake. Uh, number two. He's probably outside. I think he, Tony Miola, and Matt Reese were probably the cleanest goalkeepers with their feet in the run of play in the history of the league. Just guys that you could ping a ball back to, and they'd just be clean, and they could hit diagonals. They could play you out. They could spring the attack. Um, and he's got that the, that sidewinder with his right foot that can, you know, if you're not careful, he can drop a, drop a dime on someone 60, 70 yards away. Uh, and then it's penalty kick saves. Um, mm-hmm. I think all of those are really important. And, and, and for a guy that was kind of built in, in the same, in a similar build like John Bush, not the biggest, not the tallest, not the loudest, but could kind of fly like a cat and come up with these incredible saves. Um, I, I think that it'll be hard for anyone statistically to touch him. Um, and probably, you know, up until a couple of years ago, um, and, and I mean this by no disrespect, he, you know, he was the guy that could turn goals or, or losses and draws, draws into wins. Um, and I just think he's been, uh, you know, a pretty incredible steward of the game when it comes to the consistency and the availability and the level of his play over the years in MLS. Uh, Brian, I, I guess, you know, normally we, t- we try and end with something about how you would attack or if you were coaching against RSL, what would you do to deal with them? Um, I, I guess I kind of want to flip the question a little bit. Um, in your view, if Mike Petke had everything going exactly the way he wanted, if, you know, every player's healthy, everything's, you know, he's had months to work on it. What is this team supposed to look like philosophically? And, and how is it, how is it supposed to, you know, what does this team play like when they're at their absolute best? question um and it sounds it it sounds like such an easy narrative um but and i think a lot of coaches talk about this it's kind of like the the typical interview speak when they Mm. talk about style and substance and identity and possession and you know we want a majority majority of possession and we we want we want to be on the front foot we want you know we want the opponents to be on the back foot and we want to take the game to them um i hate all that (laughs) <laughs> but what what I will say is I, I think this team 
with the addition of, of Everton and Sam um, affords Mike Pecky the opportunity to play a couple different formations, whether it's a 4-2-3-1, which seemingly is his preferred formation, whether it's a 4-3-3, whether it's Albert Rusnak underneath the striker or Albert Rusnak wide, like he is with Slovakia when Marek Hamšík from what was Napoli, now over in China, um, mm-hmm. is the number 10. Uh, Dynier underneath uh, Sam Johnson or underneath a Corey Baird. I think there's a lot more attacking options, and I think that the competition for spots um, and the competition for starting spots isn't just about the game itself. I think it's about the training sessions um, and competing every day and showing up every day and playing at a high level every single day, which has been really difficult in Major League Soccer over the years, especially with the salary budget um, and a lot of times the turnover of general managers and head coaches. Uh, in terms of the way the team wants to play defensively, they want to limit the ability of the opponent to have um, really probing uh, offensive possession. They, they want to keep try to keep the game in front of them. Uh, if possible, guys like Brooks Lennon and Aaron Herrera want to play high up the field to force any type of wide player to think about tracking them back like they did against Venuto and Jordi Reyna at the weekend uh, for Vancouver. Um, the partnership, uh, because of the injury of Justin Glad, who seemingly might have started on the road at Houston before he broke his pinky toe in the final training session before the team left, uh, Natum Onuoha, who was from Man City, um, and uh, QPR, alongside Marcelo Silva, the target allocation money player, the Uruguayan, those two love and invite physicality. They want to battle. They want to hit. They want to bump, they want to irritate, they want to get under the skin of the attacker. And then Kyle and, and Everton want to back press. Um, and when RSL is in possession, they, they've they really focused, and I give Mike a lot of credit, they, they want to be a team that builds out of the back, even if it forces maybe a mistake here or there. They, they want to focus on the back four and Nick Romando keeping the ball at the deck and kind of find solutions to problems. Um, so I think overall that's how they want to play. They want to frustrate opponents. Uh, they want to be antagonistic and protagonistic when um, they're without the ball and trying to figure out ways to upset the rhythm of the opponent and, and, and get underneath their skin. Uh, and I think when that when it's all said and done, uh, there's two players that you, you, you've really got to slow down, and, and you both know it's going to be Lucho and it's going to be Rooney. And, and if you can figure out a way to just force them back to where they came from, because you can't negate them, you, you, you can't you can't stop them. Um, if you can just limit their their involvement as much as possible and kind of force them back where they came from, uh, I think you might have given yourself an opportunity. But this is a big test uh, for Real Salt Lake to build off of what they did in Houston, where they really only conceded one chance, and that was a Manotas goal. Um, and then against a Vancouver team where Freddie Montero, Jordi Reyna, Venuto, and Las Bangora, for the most part, were pretty silent over the course of 90 minutes. I, I think that's what RSL is trying to do at Audi Field this weekend. So you heard Jason allude to it. Uh, our, our last question usually is, how would you game plan against the team you cover or, or the team you root for? So knowing that that's how RSL will want to play at Audi Field, how would you counteract that? How would you prepare for that? Um, I would say that you can get it RSL. Um, it is going to be through their outside backs. And I know that sounds crazy. Uh, but Brooks Lennon has done a phenomenal job replacing 
last year's injured Tony Beltran, who's fully fit, and Brooks kept his spot. But you'll see Brooks, um, and, and I'll say this for kind of the old MLS and U.S. soccer heads, Brooks reminds me a lot of Frankie Hiduk. And I know he, I know Brooks was the starting wide right attacker for uh, Tab Ramos in the under-20 World Cup, but he's taken a hold of this right-back spot in a way and in a manner that I'm actually pleasantly surprised because I knew he had it. He's a good kid. He works hard. He just wants to play. But all of a sudden, I think he realized over the course of last season that longevity-wise, if he could lock down an attacking right-back role, um, he's afforded himself maybe an extra four or five years, kind of like a la Chris Albright days. Um, I'll try to bring that back for DC United guys. Um, but I, but then Aaron Herrera is an interesting one because Aaron Herrera was brought in to ultimately be the replacement for Tony Beltran. Um, but then with DeMar Phillips, the Jamaican international, and then Danny Acosta being sent on loan down to Orlando City for the whole year, um, it was because Aaron Herrera came in for the final six, seven games of the season, uh, who was the starting right back for Tab Ramos at the Under-20 World Cup and has made that left back spot his own. Uh, and Mike really tries to make sure both outside backs push as high as possible. Uh, something to keep an eye on is, is if Albert Rusnak starts wide left, he'll want to invert and go central in the attack defensively. He'll try to, uh, he'll, he'll be responsible for pushing back and protecting that left hand side and tracking the outside right back, which I assume will be Hada, uh, this weekend. Um, but, I think Knauss, uh, and, and Moreno in the midfield versus, uh, Beckerman and Everton Lease is going to be the battle because I think they're, you have to institute some type of possession, some type of rhythm. Um, but I feel like both of these teams will be looking to, as soon as they upset the opponent offensively, uh, and recover the ball, how quickly with numbers can they get forward? Um, and right now it seems like the 4-2-3-1 formation, uh, is, kind of the adjunct formation that everyone wants to go with. It's it's a lot of teams in MLS want to play this four, two, three, one. So two teams that'll look similar. And I think two teams that'll try to do almost the exact same thing. The question is who can punish the mistakes of their opponent uh, when the opportunities get to them. Donnie, thanks so much for, for coming on the show again. We always appreciate having you here. Um, can you do us a favor and tell the our one listener who hasn't already found you online where he can do that? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, at Brian Dunseth, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and then Monday through Friday alongside Tony Miola on SiriusXM channel 157 uh, from 4 to 7 p.m. Eastern time. All right. Find us at blackandredunited.com. We are on Twitter at filibusterdcu, at blackandredu, plus our personal accounts. Uh, send us an email, filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. Download, subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly, though, when you're at, uh, when you're at a bar or, or at a tailgate before the game on Saturday, just mention the show to a friend. That's the best way to, to spread the word around. Oh, also patreon.com slash filibuster if you feel like supporting us financially we definitely appreciate that too thanking dunny one more time for jason and and hoping ben gets better soon i'm adam and we'll talk to you real soon say goodbye jason bigsoccer.com soccer.com <laughs>